Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, our very last on criminal procedure, we'll be continuing our deep dive into each of the relevant sentencing provisions of the Sentencing Act that are examinable. And then I'll finish up by pulling all of the elements together, mentioning some of the common law principles that are relevant, many of which I've touched on as we've gone. And then, as mentioned, set out the structure of a plea and mitigation of penalty, which might assist you if you were asked a more open-ended question about in the bar exam about what are the types of matters that a sentencing judge must take into account in the circumstances of a particular case. And then ultimately the question is often ends with a, a proposition about what is the type of sentence that might be imposed. So you need to come to an educated guess as to the type of sentence that would be imposed. That's more difficult to guide you in relation to, but as I've gone, I've pointed out the relevant dispositions that are available to a sentencing judge so ultimately you're going to draw, you're going to need to draw your best conclusion as to in terms of characterising the seriousness of the allegation and the degree um, of force of the accused personal circumstances, whether immediate custody might be imposed or whether in the exercise of parsimony and proportionality, the other principles that are taken into account, another disposition might be imposed. At the point where we left the discussion, we'd finished identifying the relevant provisions that relate to custodial sentences. And now we're moving to the first of the provisions of the Sentencing Act that relate to community correction orders, which as you may remember, can be imposed with or without conviction. Now, a community correction order is a notoriously elastic disposition that's available under the Sentencing Act. It has been often stated by the Court of Appeal, but also by every other court that imposes uh, community correction orders, that they can be tailored to the numerous different circumstances for which sentence must be imposed, all the way from punishment and denunciation through to rehabilitation. So a community correction order can impose conditions which allow for the continued rehabilitation of the accused and their particular criminogenic needs. So it could be alcohol or drug assessment and treatment. It could be mental health assessment and treatment, but it could also be literacy or other uh, conditions that have plagued the accused and made it difficult for them to get started professionally and so forth. And because the order can be imposed for a period of time and it can involve conditions including supervision and judicial monitoring, it also works well as a deterrent sanction because during the term of the order, you might think that the accused would be reluctant to breach the order, otherwise they would become immediately accountable. So whilst it doesn't, it doesn't involve a sentence of imprisonment, it is a very suitable disposition for punishment for offences or uh, for sentencing for offences that might be of either even mid-range or higher seriousness, where there's something about the accused personal circumstances, perhaps limited history, perhaps some history, but prospect to rehabilitation, that would suggest a non-custodial sentence might be proportionate in all of the circumstances. So looking to these legislative provisions, we start with section 36. 
Section 36 of the Evidence Act indicates that the purpose of a community correction order, which I'll refer to as a CCO, is to provide a community-based sentence that may be used for a wide range of offending behaviours while, while having regard to and addressing the circumstances of the offender. And 36.2 refers to a disposition that's no longer available under Victorian law. Without limiting when a CCO may be imposed, it may be an appropriate sentence where before the ability of the court to impose a suspended sentence was abolished, the court may have imposed a sentence of imprisonment and then suspended in whole that sentence of imprisonment. So the CCO now may be considered by a court to be appropriate in a broad spectrum of offending and a broad spectrum of personal circumstances. Now, 30, Section 37 of the Sentencing Act indicates that the court may make a CCO in respect of an offender if the offender has been convicted or found guilty of an offence punishable by more than five penalty units. The court has received a pre-sentence report if required. Here I interpolate that you may remember a court must order a pre-sentence report if it's considering a CCO, except if the only condition that the court is uh, considering imposing is community work for up to 300 hours. So every other case of pre-sentence report must be obtained from the Office of Corrections and the court must have regard to recommendations, information or matters identified in the report. In 37C, the offender consents to the order, so it can't be imposed without the offender's consent. Section 38 relates to period and commencement. In the magistrate's court, in relation to one offence, a CCO can be for two years. In respect of two offences, it can be for up to four years. And in respect of three or more offences, up to five years. So up to two, up to four for two, up to five for three or more offences. And in the case of an order made by the County Court of the Supreme Court in respect of one or more than one offence, the CCO can be for up to five years. And generally, a CCO must commence on a date specified by the court that's not later than three months after the making of the order. So commencement date is specified. Section 39 allows the court, if it's imposing a CCO for six months or longer, to fix a period as the intensive compliance period. And the intensive compliance period may be for a lesser period. And 39.2, the court may then determine that one or more conditions attached to the CCO are to be completed within that initial intensive compliance period. So it may be, for instance, that community work must be dealt with in that first intensive compliance period. Generally, when it comes to rehabilitation, that tends to um, be imposed for the longer period. So it would be unusual where an optional condition were to be imposed that relates to assessment and treatment for a particular vulnerability and then for that to be paired with the intensive compliance period. You might think that community service could be the most suitable condition that would be included in intensive compliance. Section 40 allows a court, upon convicting an offender for two or more offences founded on the same facts or forming or are part of a series of offences of the same or a similar character, to impose one community correction order in respect of those offences in place of separate orders, subject to the maximum periods that I've already indicated from Section 38. So you can see the resemblance between this provision and aggregate sentences of imprisonment. 
Section 41, um, if the court makes separate community corrections orders in respect of two or more offences, the conditions of those orders are concurrent unless the court otherwise directs. So, for instance, if there were two or more offences and the court in its wisdom or as a result of the offences being different, imposed two community corrections orders to run and each of which carries 100 hours of unpaid community work, then the conditions would run concurrently unless the court otherwise directed. Now, I'll move, even though 41A is examinable on, and uh, as is 42, please just note the words of those provisions. They're not uh, acutely germane to our discussion. Section 43 allows the court to impose a fine in addition to a community correction order. Section 44 is a relevant provision which arises in practice fairly frequently, and that is, and I've spoken to this in the last discussion, imprisonment and community correction order in combination. Now, Section 44 provides jurisdictional limit. When sentencing an offender in relation to an offence or more than one offence, a court may make a community correction order in addition to imposing a sentence of imprisonment but the limit is only if the sum of all the terms of imprisonment to be served is one year or less, and that's after deduction of any pre-sentence detention. So I'll give you a couple of practical examples, picking up on the examples that I used in the last discussion. If there is no pre-sentence detention and an accused proceeds to sentence for an offence or more than one offence, the total effective sentence that a court may impose could be up to 12 months imprisonment and a community corrections order to commence upon release from imprisonment. If an accused came before the court had previously served six months pre-sentence detention, then the court may impose up to 18 months imprisonment in addition to the community correction order. We need to look back to the terms of 44 subsection 1. So the court may make a community correction order in addition to imposing a sentence of imprisonment only if the sum of the term of imprisonment to be served after deducting any period of custody that under Section 18 is reckoned to be a period of imprisonment already served is one year or less. So even if the court were to impose 18 months in that context, after deduction of PSD of six months, it comes back to 12 months, which is within jurisdictional limit. And the section continues, you'll need to have a look at it, the magistrate's court must not impose a sentence that exceeds five years in total. And note, please, the practicality, uh, 44 subsection 3, if the court makes a CCO in addition to imposing a sentence, the CCO commences on the release of the offender from imprisonment. So that ordinarily that the principle is that a CCO must commence within three months of the date of sentence. That wouldn't work, for instance, if the court had imposed six or nine or 12 months under this provision, but jurisdiction is extended. So it commences on the expiration of the custodial portion of the sentence. 44A, in relation to certain offences um, under 52GA, that is category one offences, which are not examinable for the purposes of your exam. So this is just for noting. And the court is satisfied that an order may be made, including a CCO, there are certain conditions that must be imposed. For noting and for your future or current practices involving offences carrying certain maximum minimums, certain, sorry, mandatory minimums, minima.
Now let's move to section 45, which is relatively frequently examined. And that is some question that relates to compulsory and optional terms of a community corrections order. Section 45 prescribes the compulsory terms of each order. So the following terms are attached to each community correction order under Victorian law. And you'll see the list, but I'll just pick the first three or four. The offender must not commit, whether in or outside Victoria during the period of an order, an offence punishable by imprisonment. They must report to and receive visits from the secretary during the period of the order. They must report to the community correction centre specified in the order within two clear working days of the order coming into force. And you'll see the other relevant provisions. They must not leave Victoria except with the permission, generally in relation to a particular case of the secretary and so forth. These are relatively intrusive orders during their term um, and provide limitations on the accused freedom of movement and impose other obligations, even if, for instance, the only term of the order is a requirement of unpaid community work. Section 46 permits the secretary to give written directions to a person um, subject to a CCO in relation to reporting to the secretary, receiving visits from the secretary, and so on and so forth. And you'll see that if the order is subject to particular conditions such as unpaid community work treatment and rehab, then the secretary is empowered to give written directions in those regards. So that was section 46 of the Act. Section 47 is the second principal operative provision for the, from the court's perspective. The court that is making a CCO must attach at least one condition in accordance with subsection 2. You'll see in 47.2 the optional conditions which may be imposed. They relate to Division 4 and Division 2 of Part 3BA. So they are exciting provisions that we can start looking forward to. So note then under Section 48 of the Sentencing Act, a court that's making a CCO can make one of the ancillary orders such as compensation costs or damages a term of the community corrections order. This is rarely done because it's considered appropriate that generally it's considered appropriate that the order serve the conditions of sentence and the ancillary provisions be just that, although the court does have that capacity to so impose. And section 48A is details the matters that must be considered when the court is considering attaching conditions. So the first is the principle of proportionality. The second is the purposes for which sentence may be imposed as set out in section five, which we've had a look at. And the third compulsory, the third obligation in relation to the court's deliberations is the purpose of a CCO in the circumstances of the particular case. Now, the relevant examinable conditions are in division four, which are the provisions that follows. And this is 48B2, I'll just double check the final um, accessible provision, 48LA. So there's the last provision of Division 4 that's not examinable, but look carefully, please, at 48B to 48LA. Definition section, not acutely relevant, but just for noting. The types of conditions that may be imposed in the circumstances of a particular case are reactive to the circumstances of offence and the circumstances of the offender. 
48C relates to the unpaid community work condition. So relating back to the purposes for which sentence must be imposed in the circumstances of the particular case, an unpaid community work condition is largely considered punitive. So have regard to whether the circumstances of the offence call for some punitive um, condition or the circumstances of the offender. If the accused is being subject to a sentence of imprisonment in addition to a CCO, then you might think that there's no need to impose work hours, that um, punishment would normally be taken care of by imprisonment, but that's not exhaustive. So have a look through the provisions of section 48C. Note that if it's the sole condition under 48C7, so if unpaid community work is the sole condition, it can only be for them a maximum of 300 hours. Now, otherwise 48C4, it can be for up to 600 hours. It is not common for the number of hours to be imposed on an order to fall beyond two or 300 hours. That is a staggering amount of unpaid community work. The next relevant provision, I'm not going to identify each of these. You can have a look at the provisions 48C to 48LA. Note that treatment and rehabilitation conditions may be included in the following sections. 48CA allows for the court to declare that hours completed under a treatment and rehabilitation condition may be credited towards an unpaid community work condition. So relatively recent phenomenon, and it used to be the case that unpaid community work meant one thing and treatment and rehab meant something quite different. But now the hours may be shared between that unpaid community work and the treatment and rehabilitation conditions. 48D is the treatment and rehabilitation condition itself. And have a look at the provisions, 48D2. So the court, in considering imposing this condition, must have regard to the need to address underlying causes of offending. So looking to the pre-sentence report, you need to take into account exactly what the offender's criminogenic issues are. It could be, for instance, C subsection 3, alcohol abuse or dependency, could be drug abuse or dependency or medical treatment, or it might be that uh, psychological, neuropsychological, psychiatric or hospital treatment is needed, or it could include any program that is, addresses factors relevant to their offending behaviour. So this could be for, for instance, treatment specific to sex offender rehabilitation. So it doesn't necessarily need to be medical or psychological. It could be offence specific. 48E allows a supervision condition, and that is specifically uh, supervised, monitored and managed as directed by the secretary. Non-association condition 48F. Now, this was examined obliquely in an earlier exam. It could be that the court might impose a non-contact or associate with a person specified in the order condition. In a past paper, it was suggested for moderate level offending, uh, going to low, low level offending, two co-accused were brothers that a CCO might be within the range appropriate in the proper exercise of sentencing discretion. And a lot of candidates then immediately moved on to impose a non-association condition between two brothers. Think carefully before imposing a non-association condition. 
it may be appropriate where, for instance, you might have a young offender, a much older offender, and it can't be said that the young offender obtains any positive social benefit from being in contact with the older offender, the court might tend to be fairly slow to impose a non-association condition within a family and two young brothers, for instance. So non-association conditions are not as commonly imposed as some of the others. 48G allows a residence restriction, so obliging the offender to live at a place specified in the order, or it could be a residence exclusion provision. So it could be that they not reside at a place specified in the order. And if such a condition is to be imposed, this is also a less common uh, provision, 48G2 are the factors that need to, detail the factors that need to be taken into account. 48H allows for a place or area exclusion condition and have a look at that provision. Happily, that uh, is fairly self-evident as to what that means. 48I allows a curfew condition and so this applies... probably don't need to tell anyone what a curfew is at this point, but it directs that the offender remains at the place specified in the order between specified hours of each day for the period specified in the order. And the curfew condition can not be for less than two hours each day and not more than 12 hours of each day. So that was 48i. An alcohol exclusion condition may be imposed. So see and read carefully 48j. 48JA may include a bond condition which obliges the offender to pay an amount of money as a bond and if the offender fails to comply with the order then the whole or part of that bond may be forfeited. Another less commonly imposed condition. 48K allows for judicial monitoring. So this takes the supervision and puts it into the conduct of the judicial officer that imposes the community corrections order. So while supervision of the secretary, of course, can be imposed separately, this also allows for monitoring by the court. And you can have a look at the uh, conditions that might be taken into account in imposing such a condition. Now we're back in the territory of a condition which is applied fairly regularly and 48L discusses the powers of the court on review after judicial monitoring. And if you're interested, typically that would take place within the first four to six weeks after the offender starts on the order and then periodically the monitoring process continues, perhaps once a month, perhaps once every two months unless and until uh, it's clear whether there's going to be satisfactory compliance or whether the offender is not going to be able to comply, in which case they might be discharged. And then lastly, 48LA is electronic monitoring, also a more unusual provision, but still does allow the court to impose condition that the offender agree to electronic monitoring but that is subject to limits 48LA4. The pre-sentence report must include a positive statement having regard to the circumstances of the offender's residence. They're suitable to be electronically monitored and resources or facilities are available to enable monitoring and you'll see the other provisions that the court must be satisfied of. The offender is suitable to be monitored. It's appropriate in all of the circumstances the offender be monitored and appropriate resources or facilities are available to enable the offender to be electronically monitored. And that concludes the examinable provisions with respect to CCOs. Um, So the other provisions that are taken into account and that you must be conscious about in practice relate to variation and so forth and suspension. We are moving instead to provisions 49 to 54 that relate to fines. 
So a fine is the next successive step down the sentencing hierarchy. We started right at the top with imprisonment, moved on to the next quite substantial step in the hierarchy, community correction orders, and then we move on to fines. Section 49 is the first examinable provision. Of course, if a person's found guilty of an offence, the court may fine the offender in addition to or instead of any other sentence. And see section 50 and following. The maximum fine that a court may impose is the appropriate maximum specified in the provision or it can be derived from section 109 of the Sentencing Act based on the prescription as to the maximum level of offence or maximum level of imprisonment that may be imposed. Section 51 permits aggregate fines and um, please have a look at the balance of that section to figure out how the quantum is calculated. Section 52 is an acutely relevant provision, which is that if the court decides to fine an offender, it must, in determining the amount and method of payment of the fine, take into account as far as practicable the financial circumstances of the offender and the nature of the burden that its payment will impose. So it stands to reason that a person who's in receipt of Centrelink benefits is going to feel the punitive force of, of a fine of perhaps $500, far more forcefully than a person who is earning a substantial amount of private income from employment or from um, some other source. Section 53 in relation to fines requires the court to take into account other ancillary orders that it has made in relation to forfeiture of the offender's property or the automatic forfeiture of the offender's property or requiring the offender to make restitution or pay compensation. So they're matters to which the court has uh, regard in considering those financial circumstances. And the last provision that's relevant uh, when quantifying a fine is section 54. So the court may have regard to, amongst other things, loss or destruction of or damage to property suffered by a person as a result of the offence and the value of any benefit derived by the offender as a result of the offence. So section 54 is one last requirement that the court have regard to the loss or damage experienced by the victim, but also the other side of things is, is the gain drawn by the particular offender. So then we move on to other orders that the court may make and we move forward to section 70 of the Sentencing Act. So this is quite a long way forward. So here we're talking to dismissals, discharges and adjournments and the adjournment, of course, was equivalent to the good behaviour bond um, where we talk about it in the vernacular. Section 70 restates the purpose of orders under this division, which relates to those dismissals, discharges and adjournments. So the order may be made to provide for rehabilitation by allowing sentence to be imposed in the community unsupervised or and or to take into account the trivial, technical or minor nature of the offence committed to allow the offender to demonstrate their remorse in a manner agreed to by the court, to allow for circumstances in which it's inappropriate to record a conviction and to allow for circumstances in which it's inappropriate to inflict any punishment other than nominal punishment. So just a gentle reminder and recap that these orders can be made with or without conviction as um, overtly mentioned in the section and also just taking a step back that so can fines. The other examinable provisions in this tranche are up to 77 inclusive, so I won't refer to each of them individually, but note 72 
So a, an adjournment can be following conviction. So if an accused, having regard to those matters mentioned in Section 70, has committed an offence of some triviality and uh, having regard to their personal circumstances, they, um, the court considers that a conviction bond is appropriate. So the court may adjourn the proceedings for up to five years and release the offender on the offender giving an undertaking with conditions attached. And those conditions may include 72.2, the offender attend before the court if called on to do so, the offender be of good behaviour in the meantime, and the offender observe conditions attached to by the court, including a contribution to charity or community service or a payment to the court which can be forwarded to an organisation. And they may include a justice plan as well. And a justice plan um, we will come back to and see whether it's accessible or not in due course. Now, question might be asked, why would the court convict and release on a bond? It might be in a situation where the offender has previously enjoyed the benefit of a bond without conviction, but has then moved on to commit another offence also of that same sort of modest seriousness so they've the court may conclude that they've foregone their chance to be released without conviction but they deserve a second adjournment albeit with conviction or it could be that it is a finding of guilt for an offence that carries no public stigma so you might remember when we talked about conviction and non-conviction that it could be for instance that a conviction such as for theft or another similar offence might restrict the person's employment opportunities or reputational opportunities in the future. Now, the court may not have those concerns with respect to, for instance, a conviction for a driving offence. So a careless driving, for instance, doesn't carry any particular public stigma so that the accused may be released on a conviction bond for the sake of argument. Now, the successive provisions, 73, 74, relate to the capacity of the court to discharge a person after conviction. The conviction discharge is a penalty that might attach, for instance, to drunken disorderly, where a person has been lodged in the cells for four hours, then comes before the court, or doesn't come before the court because the matter can proceed summarily. And the court noting the four hours of um, being put in the cells um, might convict and discharge the accused. And Section 74 allows for compensation or restitution in addition to the uh, bond. Section 75 is the commonly invoked adjournment without conviction. So this is a non-conviction bond. So if a person is found guilty of an offence, the court may, without recording a conviction, adjourn proceedings for up to five years and release the offender on the offender giving an undertaking with conditions listed in 75 subsection 2. So the court may select those most appropriate in the circumstances of the case. So it might be that the offender attends before the court if called on to do so, that they might be of good behaviour in the meantime, and that they might observe special conditions such as making a charitable contribution or community service. All right, so coming to the end of the examinable provisions with respect to bonds, uh, note section 76 and 77 and the capacity of the court to impose a compensation or restitution order in addition to the non-conviction bond. Now, section 80 is the justice plan condition. So the justice plan condition can be made a condition either of a conviction adjournment or an, a non-conviction adjournment. And this relates to a situation where 
the court investigating a justice plan condition has obtained a pre-sentence report and has obtained a statement from the Secretary to the Department of Health and Human Services that the accused has an intellectual disability within the meaning of the Disability Act. The court then must obtain a plan of available services designed to reduce the likelihood of the offender committing further offences. So a justice plan condition arises in those circumstances where the court is sentencing a person who falls within that category and recognition of their intellectual disability. And 83A is the last provision, and that allows for deferral of sentence for a period not exceeding 12 months to allow the offender to demonstrate their capacity for and prospects for rehabilitation or provide proof rehabilitation has taken place, to allow the offender, for instance, to participate in a program or programs aimed at addressing the impact of the offending on the victim and other similar circumstances. Now, 84 to 89DE is the next tranche of examinable provisions. Um, note that the provisions that follow relate to contravention of orders and you've been told by the reading guide that they're not examinable. So here we move on then to section 84. We'll move past superannuation orders, which happily for you are not examinable. So you can have a look at these orders that can be made ancillary to the finding of guilt. So this is whether or not the offender has been convicted. Note the restitution order and what that means under section 84. And if you are new to this terminology, it's worth having a good look and working through the difference, for instance, between restitution and compensation. It has a little bit of equity to it, funnily enough, which is the last place in the Sentencing Act that you'd find equitable remedies, but you can see the traces. 84, restitution is where a person has been found guilty or convicted of an offence connected with theft. So restitution follows theft or a similar property offence. So restitution obliges the person who has possession or control of the stolen goods to restore them or an order that the sum not exceeding the value of the stolen goods be paid to another person. So that's the heart of the restitution order. And once you understand that restitution follows a finding of guilt for theft or a related offence, then you can see the difference between that and the compensation order, which is 85A and following. These provisions are complicated. They will take some time. You need to be aware of the definition of injury, which can include not only actual physical bodily harm, but also grief, distress or trauma, and indeed pregnancy if such a situation arises. So 85B allows the court on finding a person guilty or convicting them to order a compensation order for an amount for pain and suffering to the victim and or for expenses incurred past future by the victim for counselling or medical expenses incurred or likely to be incurred and other expenses incurred or likely to be incurred. So here we see the similarity and the difference with restitution. The similarity is it's another of the ancillary orders that can be made, but compensation relates to a, an award, a monetary award for the pain and suffering and related applications. Um, 85C provides procedure on application for the compensation order. 
and the capacity of the court to extend time if necessary. And these provisions are intended, now I'm glossing over them and you'll have to have a look at them um, when time allows, but as far as these provisions are concerned, they're intended to provide a, um, an abridged method of the for recovery of compensation following the event of a finding of guilt or conviction. So it's intended in a way to abridge the civil proceedings that could otherwise take place. Now, noting the time, I'm just going to draw to your attention the group of provisions that follow. I'll finish the legislative provisions and then at the start of our first civil lecture or discussion, I'll finish the summary of the sentencing provisions. Note Division 2A, Recovery of Assistance Paid Under the Victims of Crime Assistance Act. Under Division 2B, Recovery of Costs Incurred by Emergency Service Agencies. Division 3, which brings to an end examinable, oh, sorry, there's one more, driver's licence and learner's permit suspension, cancellation and driver disqualification and alcohol exclusion orders are the last batch of examinable provisions. So they are all ancillary orders that can be made following a finding of guilt. And that is even if a person is placed on a disposition without conviction. Now, mentally ill offenders, note please that this is examinable as per the reading guide. It has not been examined in the past. Under Part 5 of the Sentencing Act, the court is allowed to make an assessment order requiring that a person subject to the order be compulsorily examined by an authorised psychiatrist to determine whether they should be made subject to a temporary treatment order or a court-secure treatment order or taken to and detained at a designated mental health service. So the circumstances would um, of the accused psychological and psychiatric vulnerability would need to be pronounced in order for this section to be triggered or a group of sections to be tri triggered. Section 91 indicates timing in which the court may make a court assessment order and the contents of the order are prescribed by section 92. So the provisions that follow relate to the effect and duration of a court assessment order and the provisions collateral to that order. So have a look through those provisions. The last of in the sequence which is examinable is section 94. C also 94A, 94B and 94C relate to the court secure treatment order. Fortunately, these orders are not commonly made in practice. They apply to the uh, most vulnerable accused and, as mentioned, have not yet been examined. So the last of the relevant examinable provisions is 109 and some non-sequential sections following. So this will take us through to the end of this discussion. Section 109 is the provision of the Sentencing Act that prescribes the maximum term of imprisonment and maximum fine for each level of penalty prescribed by other acts. So, for instance, looking at the Crimes Act, if you were to look at Level 5 or Level 6, you'll see maximum term of imprisonment as being 10 years or 5 years, respectively. 
and 1,200 penalty units or 600 penalty units respectively. So over the last sequence of decades, the movement has been towards that level of standardisation so that each offence provision is prescribed at maximum penalty by reference to levels. And if you need to decode the level, it's found in Section 109 of the Sentencing Act. 112 of the Sentencing Act is a nice adjunct to the summary procedure found in the Criminal Procedure Act. 112 relates to classification of offences as indictable or summary. So you may remember under the Criminal Procedure Act that an offence punishable by a maximum of two years imprisonment was automatically characterised as summary. And we now see from Section 112 that that means something that is of level seven imprisonment or fine or both or higher. In other words, those crimes that are specified as being level one, two, three, four, five, six, which are all punishable by more than two years imprisonment, indictable offences. And the maximum fine for an indictable offence heard and determined summarily under 112A is 500 penalty units. So the last batch of examinable provisions, 113 to 113C, the maximum term of imprisonment for an indictable offence heard and determined summarily, which you may remember from our discussion of criminal procedure, is two years imprisonment for one offence. That's 113, subsection 1 of the Sentencing Act. And likewise, the maximum term of imprisonment for a summary offence is two years that assumes that a summary offence has a prescribed level of imprisonment. As you may well know, most summary offences are dealt with by way of fine and that provision doesn't introduce liability to imprisonment if the maximum penalty, like for a parking offence, doesn't include imprisonment. Section 113B rounds off nicely that proposition that the Magistrates Court may impose two years for one offence, but 113B, five years for several offences, cumulative sentences of imprisonment. So the jurisdictional limit of the Magistrates Court for multiple offences is five years imprisonment. And the very last examinable provision from the Sentencing Act, 113C, If there's no maximum term of imprisonment prescribed, the maximum term that may be imposed is two years imprisonment. I um, have, at last, spoken to each of the examinable provisions in the Sentencing Act. So now, and done so unassisted by notes, probably to your despair, read fresh from the Sentencing Act. There's nothing like having a look at the provisions because there's so much minutiae in there. Judicial College, as always, is very helpful in this regard. And for the first 15 minutes or so of our next discussion, we will recap sentencing and principles and structure a plea before we discuss our very last group of laws that are examinable, and that is civil procedure. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.